False religions have many men who would be God. But in the true faith, there is only one God who would be man. And that God is a very, very, very big God. A small God needs mankind to tell him who deserves to be saved. But a very big God foretells and writes down every name before the world began of those he would save. Supporting scripture to that is Revelation chapter 20, verse 12 through 15. A small God requires man's help to remove sin via some sort of ritual prepayment system or a false purgatory postpayment system. But a very big God is able to pay in full our past, present, and future sin debt by himself from the cross. Supporting scripture, Hebrews 9.12. A small God can only offer temporary salvation that man is able to override, disrupt, or lose, but a very big God is able to keep all those he called secured in his hand, even when we fall short of his glory or backslide. Supporting scripture, John chapter 10, 28 through 29. A small God needs evolution to make man a little higher than the apes, but a very big God was able to make man a little lower than the angels. Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 2. A small God needs man to protect his fragile world from global warming, carbon emissions, Ebola, the nuclear holocaust, but a very big God dictates how and when the world will end. Matthew chapter 24. A small God is confined by the laws of nature, but a very big God can turn water into wine, make the blind see, raise the dead, have a man swallowed by a great fish, flood the world, and walk on the water he created. John 6.19 A small God needs a big bang to bring about creation, but a very big God simply speaks the world into existence. Genesis 1.3 A small God is only powerful in a distant and far-off time and place, but a very big God is as powerful today and tomorrow. Matthew 11.24 In short, we view God lower than he is, and ourselves higher than we are. What is meant by this is our worldly view is that we lower God. We, we think of him as more tolerant to sin than he truly is. We think of him as less righteous than he truly is. To drive that point home, think of sin. The effects of sin today, we see it in nature, we see it in hurricanes and volcanoes, and we see it in diseases. Uh, we see it in famine, we see it in drought, we see it in flooding, and we see it within our own society. We see uh, corruption and stealing and murders and rapes and, and all of these sort of things. All of these are the symptoms of sin. So today we are living in a sinful world, and think of it this way. Back millennia ago, when in the Garden of Adam and Eve, there was one sin that was created, they ate the apple, and that caused a trigger of events that we're still going through today. So think about God's tolerance to sin. It just took one sin. It took one defiling act by eating the apple that God brought judgment down that, that millennial later were still living by. It wasn't sin upon sin upon sin where God said, all right, enough is enough. You know, I, I'm going to cause judgment. It was one sinful act. So God is very intolerant of sin, 
And then think about the sins that you and I have every day, sins of action and sins of thought. So if, it, if God is intolerant of just one sin, imagine how he views you and I. However, God is a loving God. And why that's important to us is love is an action. If love were an emotion or a feeling, then that really would not help us out. But because love is an action, how we express love to one another is through action. It's really not by emotion or feeling. Biblically speaking, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he what? That he felt warm and fuzzy about us? No. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So, so love is an action. It's giving. So why that is, is helpful for us is even though we are sinful and God is very intolerant of sin, he is also loving and has given us a way to overcome, to defeat sin, and to come back into fellowship with him. And out of all of the things that are important to God, glory is God's most important uh, view. God does not want to share his glory with anyone else. That's what Isaiah chapter 48, 11 says. He will not share his glory with anyone else. So in the Bible, hundreds if not even thousands of times, it talks about God's glory. So where we defile God is when we do not give him the glory. When God does something, when he goes to the cross for us in an action and we reject that, that is denying God's glory. When we think of of uh, creation is happening through some sort of evolution that is denying God his glory. So it's very important that we look at the glory of God. And how do we do that? Well, one of the ways that we glorify God is by fruit. And how do how do we know um, an apple tree and an orange tree? We know it by its fruit. If it didn't have fruit on it as we're driving by in a car, it would be very difficult to recognize that. But when we see oranges or apples or whatever it is on that tree, that helps identify it. The same is true with us. When we produce fruit, that identifies us as fellow believers, as Christians. And then among fruit, the most important fruit is the first fruit. Because whenever a crop is is produced, perhaps strawberries or corn on the cob, whenever that first fruit of the season comes in, that is always the most important because it's probably been a year since you've last had corn or last had strawberries that have freshly grown in a garden. So when you eat that first fruit, it's the best because you haven't tasted it for a year. So that is the first fruit. But why also the first fruit is important is there's no guarantee that there's going to be a second crop. So for example, when you eat the first fruit of a strawberry, what if a hailstorm came that night? Or what if a, a tornado came and just obliterated that crop? You would never get another taste of it. So the first fruit is the most important, and that's what we give to God. We give him the best of our time. We give him the best of our day. We give him the first of our, our, our money when it comes to offering. We give him the best of everything, and, and that is fruit. And there's specific fruit that God looks at. And, and when you look at fruit... The opposite of this is also true. Um, to not produce fruit would be to not do these things. So the Bible speaks specifically about fruit in a couple in a couple ways. One, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, 
that is producing fruit. That is acknowledging, that is giving God his glory, that he's rightful in judgment, uh, he's rightful in, in what he did on the cross. So when we confess that, that is um, very important. That is the first fruit. Praying is another type of fruit. When we pray, we are speaking to God. We're confessing um, um, his glory. We're, we're acknowledging him. So when we pray, that is how God knows us. When we read the scriptures, when we read the Bible, that is how we know God. So when we pray, we're acknowledging that he's the living true God, the one that can answer and hear prayers. When we give of our first fruits, um, like I said, when we give our, uh, the most time, uh, um, the most uh, valuable time, uh, where we're the, the clearest of, of, of memory and, and, and paying attention. Um, we're not reading the Bible when we're watching TV or when we're drowsy and ready to fall asleep, but yet we give him um, our first fruits when we're the most alert, when we have the most quiet and peaceful time. Um, so, um, so that would be a first fruit. When we confess our sins, um, that's another type of fruit because we're acknowledging that we are wrong and he is right. It's not that God doesn't know about our sins that we have to tell him. He already knows it, but what it's doing, it's saying that, hey, when you judge me, you are right to judge me the way that you see fit. I'm confessing for mercy and for grace. So that is, that's a first fruit. Uh, that's, a, that's a type of a fruit. When we proclaim God's word, when we have a willing to share um, what we know, what our uh, story of salvation and faith is, when we um, share what we've learned in the Bible, maybe through Bible study, this is a way that we produce fruit. When we use our gifts, we each have a, a unique blend of talents and skills and abilities and interests that, that God has given um, each of us, and each one is unique. And if we're not using those gifts and skills and those callings for God's benefit, then we're wasting, we're squandering it. So one of the ways that we produce fruit is by using the gifts that he has given us in a way that will enhance him and give him glory and spread his word and so forth. So we're using it for his, his benefit. Um, when we um, when we are obedient to um, to God, when God has a calling for us, that we um, obey his commands, the things that he told us how to live and how to act and and how to treat one another, that we're, we're, we're in obedience to the things that he had said. When we have purity, um, our bodies are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is within us. So we do not want to defile the Holy Spirit by watching pornography or or doing things that would be um, harmful, perhaps drugs. We want to treat our bodies as God is present within them. Um, we do not want to put God through those sort of um, um, impure acts. So that's a way to show um, that's a way to show our fruit. When we have unity and fellowship, uh, when we um, when we're united with the church and and we're we're uh, building up fellow believers and other family members. Uh, that's a way that we do it. When we're confessing the things that we've learned, when we go to st um, study and hear the other um, things that, that people have to say about, about God, that's a way that, uh, that, we, um, that we produce fruit. When we trust in God, when we don't um, have all the information, but we just, we just submit to God and say, I don't know what your will and purposes are, but I know that you're, you're good and holy and you know more than I do, and I surrender to you. So when we trust in God, that's a way to 
um, that's a way to produce fruit. Uh, just by doing right, uh, trying to be a better person today than I was yesterday. Um, that's certainly not how we get to heaven, but that's a way we glorify God. Um, when we try to be a better person, when we try to do what is right, and when we try to follow his word and his will, when we praise God and give thanks for his works, when we look, when we read in the Bible about the things that he did, such as calling the Jewish people, the, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. Um, those are historical things he did, creating the world, speaking the world into existence. Those are things he did. Those are his works. Uh, going to the cross and, and, and submitting himself for us. Those are things that he did. So we want to call those things out, and, and those would be for his, his benefit. And then the other thing we would want to do is we would want to be aware of his attributes. Uh, what are the things that are unique to God? Uh, we would want to pray and be mindful of this. It's a long list, but just in the book of Genesis, um, these are the attributes that God speaks about himself. God says he is creator. He knows our thoughts. He makes and keeps covenants. He controls nature. God knows the future, blesses with prosperity and famine, controls childbearing, knows the beginning from the end. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He judges the righteous and the wicked. God is patient and knows the integrity of our hearts. God keeps us from sinning. He speaks to the prophets, enters into our dreams, protects marriages. God opens and closes wombs. He commanded obedience, takes away our distress. God hears our, our voice. He hears our cries. He takes away our fear and opens our eyes. God provides our needs and quenches our thirst. God is with us. God is everlasting. God tests us. He is provider. He puts a value on being feared. He makes oaths and swears by them on his own name. God greatly blesses us. He multiplies our seed over generations. God gives us possessions. He blesses nations. God has a voice. The Lord blesses us in every way. He is the God of heaven and the God of earth. He swears his blessing to us. He takes us from where we are and sends us to where he wants us. He sends his angels before us. God grants us success and shows us loving kindness. He does not forsake us. He is truthful. He guides our way. He walks with us. The angels are his. He makes our journey successful. God brings salvation of life. He gathers us to our people at death. He establishes nations and gives them strength. God charges us to keep his commandments, statutes, and law. God preserves and protects those he has chosen. God blesses us for the sake of those who serve him. God is almighty. He gives us ownership of land. He takes us where we go and brings us back. He gives us food to eat and garments to wear. The Lord is my God. He sees our afflictions. He vindicates us. He gives heed to us. He endows us with good gifts. He gives us our wages. He takes away our approach. God allows action for us and against us. God takes away and God gives. God knows us by name. He sees us. He knows our, our vows. He knows the things we do. He sees the toil of our hands. He watches over us. He calls himself the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, the God of Bethel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Shiloh, the Lion of Judah. God warns us. He is sovereign over us. He physically touches. God has a face. In love with one another, we see the face of God. God is gracious. He answers us. He is with us wherever we go. 
He places a great terror into the hearts of those who oppose him. He appeared to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. He reaffirms his promises to us. God blesses a believer's descendants. God has shown his presence in visible form. God accepts our worship covenants. He brings joy from out of sorrow. God divinely assigns us our places. God oversees our lives. God brings purpose. He makes us prosper. God assigns us a moral code. God raises us up into authority. God alone is the interpreter of dreams. God tells us and shows us beforehand what he is about to do. God repeats his words twice on matters determined. God acts quickly. God informs us. God makes us forget all our trouble. God makes us fruitful during our place and time of affliction. Vengeance is God's. He grants compassion. He prudently rules over the affairs of life. God preserves life. God is our deliverance. God puts leaders in their positions. God is God. God sanctifies us by making us loathsome through the eyes of the world. He establishes the length of our lives. He blesses the aged to see their grandchildren. God is my shepherd, my redeemer, my savior, my mighty one, my stone. He blesses heaven. He blesses the 12 tribes of Israel. He gathers us to our people when we breathe our last. God brings good from what men intended for evil. But among all of God's attributes, God is holy. For you and I in the angels in heaven will say, holy, holy, holy is he. So what other things in the Bible does God reveal about himself? Well, we can turn to John chapter 1 in the first 14 verses. And looking specifically at verse 14, it says, the word became flesh. This is a view uh, from God's perspective of Jesus in the manger. And it says, the word became flesh. God became flesh. So why does God refer to himself as the word? Well, the answer to that, biblically, is that the way that we knew God before Jesus came to us was from the word. In essence, the only thing we knew about God was his voice. God spoke the world into existence. God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. God spoke to the prophets. God spoke to one person at a time on a mountaintop or through visions. And then that those persons would disseminate what God said. So everything was known about God through his voice. Verse 14 says, The word, the voice, became flesh meaning God became to us in flesh through Jesus. So since verse 14 gives us the key to what the, the word means, the word means Jesus. So then we can go back and we can reread the very first verse on, and in where we see the word, we can substitute that with Jesus. So we could also read, In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only is God the Word, but God is also the light. So how do we discern what to make of that? Well, 
when it comes to God's light, we can go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And it said, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So this light that was introduced to us on day one of creation was God himself. This was not the sun and the moon. That wasn't created until day four when we read verse 14. So going back to John chapter one, this light is God. So God only not only describes himself as the word, but he also describes himself as the light. And he said the light came into the darkness. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you think about the, the deepest part of space where it's so dark, or if you went into a closet and closed the door and there's no windows and it's pitch black, or you went into an underground cave and there's absolutely no, no light, you could strike a match and that light from that dim little match would cut through the darkest part of space. So light overcomes darkness. Light is superior to darkness. When you turn on a light switch, the dark flees. So, so light is superior to darkness. We will never have a dark flashlight. We will only have a light flashlight. So light is superior to darkness. When darkness and light is compared to you and I, you might want to think about Helen Keller as an example. Here is a person that lived in complete darkness. She had no comprehension of the world that resided outside of her own mind. If somebody came up to her, she was not, not able to hear, to speak, or to talk. So if somebody touched her on the elbow, that would be shocking to her because she didn't hear that person approaching. They couldn't cough or she couldn't hear their, their footsteps. So if that person touched their, her shoulder or her elbow... She didn't know if that was a wild animal at first or if it was a, a friend or foe. It wasn't until Ann Sullivan broke through at the well and was able to communicate and teach her sign language. At that point, it's like a, a firefly within her complete darkened mind had turned on. Now she realized that there was a world outside of her world that she could interact with. And she was able to do that through sign language and through through building on the relationship she had. The same is true for you and I. Before we come into faith, we are in darkened worlds just like Helen Keller. We love our darkness, and when that light comes on, it's as strange to us, it's as startling to us as if we were in a complete lighted room and the power went off and all the lights shut off. You and I would be startled and say, what just happened? Well, for people that live in darkness, people that love their sin and want to be in darkness, when they see a light come into their darkened room, it is as shocking to them as it would be for you and I if the lights went out in our lives. When they see this light come in, they're, what, they're, they're thinking, what is this? Um, they scurry away to get away from it. So this light is what shines through our lives and, and leads us. And, and, and God is saying that he is that light. He is that power. Some other parts of the Bible that God reveals himself is interesting. In Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, it says, God said to Moses, 
I am your Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So here, here you have Abraham, Jacob, and, and Isaac. And God did not make himself fully known to them, even though he had given them the, the covenant, the promise that is passed down to you and I today by faith. So it's interesting that, that God, who had a relationship, a friendship with, with Abraham is what the Bible says, but yet they did not know God fully. And then when we read in Exodus chapter 33, this is where it states in verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So here you have another example where God is calling Moses, Abraham, friends, but yet neither of them knew God fully. Moses, even though he had this relationship, he knew he wasn't seeing the essence of God. So he asked him, as we read in, in verse 33, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And, and God says, you can't see that. Um, it, it's, it's just too pure for you. But God says, what I will do is I will put you into a cave, in the back part of a cave, and I will pass by you. And when I'm passing by you, I will put my hand over your eyes so you cannot see me. And just as I'm about to pass by, I'll remove my hand and you can see the back of my glory, the back of my head, the back of my glory. That's as much as I'll allow you to see. But the point is that Moses, even though he, he knew God, even though Abraham knew God, the Bible says, God says, they did not know me fully. So the fullness of God is revealed to us really incrementally. Um, the angels did not know that God had the, the power or creativity at creation to create the world. And when they found out, they shouted for joy. We did not know about God's forgiveness and mercy until sin came into the world. And then he showed us how he forgave it. And we shout for joy. So God reveals himself um, to us, his powers in these ways. When we go to Job, God also... Um, describes his power this way. In Job chapters 40 and 41, this is where God describes the dinosaurs. In essence, he describes a T-Rex. He talks about how the rows of, of teeth are sh like sharp knives. He talks about how it has a barreled, powerful chest. He talks about his tail is like a tree. It's like a cedar tree that sways back and forth. It talks about how its legs are closely knit together, its knees are closely knit together, in that among the, the, um, the beasts of the world, that this is the top of the food chain. There's nothing more powerful, um, that it's fearful for everybody. So this is a situation where, where Job knows what God is speaking about. He's, he's seen these dinosaurs. He's seen the description of these. It's, it goes in great detail in chapter 40 and 41 of Job. So you can read about these dinosaurs, what they look like. Quite frankly, in the, in the book, it talks about them being uh, behemoth. Uh, the word dinosaur is something that just came into our uh, lexicon really probably 100 years ago. Prior to that, we didn't know dinosaurs exist. It wasn't until they found the fossils and put them together and they came up with the name dinosaur. Well, the name dinosaur didn't exist. In the Bible, it talks about it being the behemoth. But the description's the same thing. 
So the point is that among the most powerful beasts, God talks about these beasts like they're little pets, that uh, he could put a hook through their nose and lead them around um, you know, anywhere he wants. So it's, it's a very interesting interaction about his, his power. Um, when, we, when we read about, uh, about the events of the flood, um, it talks about how not all of the animals went onto the ark. Um, that, um, that um, you know, by God's choosing, he did not lead all of the animals onto the ark. The dinosaurs were some that were not led onto the ark. And ultimately, they drowned. They were encased in mud from the flood. And then, you know, millennia later, we uncover the bones. And how are the bones preserved? They're preserved by the mud of a flood, uh, not because of uh, an asteroid. An asteroid would create heat and fire. Uh, that would not encase uh, dinosaur bones and so forth. Uh, that would create flames. That would not create mud. Uh, it's through the flood that creates the fossils. But anyway, so God describes himself in, through Job. He says, you know, where were you at, at the time of creation? Um, if, if, what God says um, in, the, in the book of Job, he, he, he ponders some, some heavy thoughts. He, he, he talks about some distant land on the, on the other end of the world that you and I don't even know about. And he talks about in that land, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a cliff and on that cliff there's a some sort of a raven or a bird that has has a um, has little little chicks that are, are crying out to its mother for food well who who supplies that food God does so God is talking about these things in the book of Job he says you know do you care for these when these animals cry out to you you know do you take care of them no you don't I do and he goes through uh, um, he goes through and he he, he talks about the the physics of the world. Um, when you think about the the planets, the planets rotate. Um, you know they rotate on their axis, but yet the moon stays stationary. We've never seen the backside of the moon. Every time we look at the moon, we're always looking at the same side of it. We've never seen the backside of it unless it's been through, um, you know, through uh, through an astronaut, through a um, some sort of a moon landing. But but we only see the right side. The the stars. Um, are stationary; they don't rotate. So why is it that some some parts of the the solar system they move, um, some rotate, some move, but others are fixed objects? Um, you know, well, God does that. God spins them. God keeps them in their place. You think about the weight of the world, the Earth that you and I live on. You, you know, with all the the weight of the the oceans and the weight of the mountains and the weight of the dirt and and think of how heavy that is and what supports it into blankness. It's just floating in air, staying perfectly in its place. Well, who does that? God does that. You may say it's gravity. Well, what creates gravity? Um, what, you know, we know gravity exists, but what creates it? Um, you know, we don't really know that source. Well, that source is God. So God points out all of these things to Job um, in, in admonishing him. He says, you know, were you there? You act like you know so much. You know, do you know these things? Do you, do you take care of this? Who gives the, who gives the horse its fearlessness? Uh, back in the day before tanks, um, people would go to battle on horses. Well, those horses are fearless. They hear the trumpet, um, meaning charge, and they just run straight for the gunfire. Um, they're not fearful. They don't duck. They don't hunt. They just go as fast as, as they can. And, you know, who puts that fearlessness in them? God says he does. So God is showing his power. He's showing how 
he leads even the most um, powerful things. That he can he can lead a a dinosaur on a chain like it's a little uh, like it's a little puppy dog. So God uses his book to tell us about him in ways that we would never know, we would never ponder, we would never have curiosity to think about. But once he reveals it, it, it really does make it easier to believe. Uh, when we look at the power of Niagara Falls and, a, and a, um, a volcano and an earthquake, we can see the power of God. We can look at nature and we can see the large things and the distant things. We can look at the order. We can look at everything. And all of those are testimonies about God, about who he is. We know that God is a God of joy and laughter because who created joy and laughter? God did. So we know that he, he likes, he, he could have made um, you and I so that we could have survived by eating dirt, uh, where we eat dirt every day. But God isn't that way. He gives us, he gives us flavor. He gives us fruit. He gives us variety. He gives us color. So those are all things that would indicate the type of God that we have, um, that he's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a God that wants to please. So as we scratch the surface of the Bible a little bit deeper, to understand the things that God said and made known about himself, one of the things we would want to delve deeper into is God's use of time. In the podcast about Revelation, we had earlier spoken about how God views time differently than you and I do. In addition to that, God also uses time in, a, um, in an eternal way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Peter was talking about the times of, the, of Jesus' second coming, how even though it is one day, there's also a thousand year period of time that happens during the millennial period after um, Satan is put into the abyss and then after a thousand years is released. And, and Peter says that's still the same event, that to God, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. To better understand God's control in use of time, we look at John chapter 7 verse 6 and then also John chapter 11 verse 8. There it says, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. What Jesus was saying is that Jesus is on an eternal time clock. There's, there's events that are happening that Jesus has to be in certain places at certain times. He's going to interact with people that are um, blind and lame, and he has to be at those places at that particular time. He has to go to the cross at a specific time. He has to come off of the cross at a specific time. He has to arise from the dead at a specific time. So Jesus is on, um, on a, a time frame that is unique to nobody else. You and I, we can float in and out and do the things we want to do as we want to do them. We are not on that time constraint. Jesus was. He says, um, you know, um, my time is not here for you. Any time will do. Um, so that's one indication that Jesus is on a on a time frame of, of deity. The other example from John eleven eight. It says, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there were trying to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Well, that's kind of a strange thing. On one hand, they're trying to give Jesus a warning. Hey, why would you go back? They're trying to stone you. And then Jesus says, yeah, but there's 12 hours of daylight. 
So what Jesus is saying is, who creates the timeline? Who determines when someone's life is coming to an end? Is that humans or is that God? Who determines the length of a day? Um, are there 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of nighttime? How is that determined? Well, that's determined by God. So God had already predetermined that Jesus would go on the cross. He was not going to die from stoning. He was going to die from crucifixion. So Jesus is saying, this is irrelevant. The fact they were trying to stone me, they were obviously not going to succeed. That was not um, God's will and plan. So God is in charge of that. So when the Bible says that Jesus had to be at the cross at a particular time, how does that start? How does that unfold? Well, we can go back to Titus 1-2, and it says, God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. So we have this abstract understanding about some promise that was made before the beginning of time. So at this point, all we know is that there was something promised before the beginning of time, that something was supposed to happen somewhere down the line. And we pick this up in Luke one twenty, And Jesus says, Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Matthew 8.29, when a demon had just come out of a, a person because of uh, uh, because of what Jesus had done, pulled the demon out of that uh, that that person. The the demon had had said to Jesus, "What do you want with us, Son of God?" They shouted, "Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time?" So we have this this promise before the beginning of time, and then we're hearing about an appointed time, but we still don't really know what or when. And then when we continue further in Luke uh, two nine. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So this is Jesus' birth. So that was part of the fulfillment of it. John 7, 8 says, you go to the festival. I'm not going with you to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And then in Luke 9, 51, it says, um, as the time approached. And then in Matthew 26, 8, it says, my appointed time is near. And then John 8, 56, it says, seeing my day. So we've gone from some promise that was made before the beginning of time, and it talked about an appointed time, and then it starts to talk about, you know, my time is not fully come. And now we're talking about a day that, uh, that John says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he was glad. And then we go into more specifics. It's starting to narrow down now into ours. In John 2, 4, it says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. Jesus said that at the wedding when he turned the, uh, the water into wine. And then John seven thirty, it says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John eight twenty four, it says, My hour had not yet come. In Mark 1, 15, it says, The time has come. So now... The time is there. The hour um, at one time had not come. Now the time is, is here. In John twelve thirty one, it says, now is the time. Luke 21, it says, this is the time. Matthew 26, 45, the hour has come. John 13, 1, the hour had come. Luke 22, 14, when the hour came. Luke 22, 50, 53, it says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. John 17, 1. After Jesus has said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. 
in John 12, 27, it says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Mark 15, 25 says, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. So here we have a complete story of a promise that was made, talked about an appointed time, it talked about the day was drawing near, it talked about how the hour was approaching, how the hour has come, and now we know that that hour was 9 a.m. That is when Jesus was crucified. But as Peter had said to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So even though the timetable had been fulfilled, that it was 9 a.m. in the morning when Jesus was crucified, we still have Jesus' second coming, which is um, yet to happen. And Jesus gives us some details about that. In essence, there's a new clock that is started. And Jesus gives us some information about that in Matthew 24, 3. It says, Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Mark 13, 26 gives us some information that says, At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. John 6, 40 says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son of Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up at the last day. Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here you have about a time, a day, and a promise. So we know that Jesus' second coming is going to happen in a particular day. Other things that the Bible says about it, it says the day of the Lord, and also says the day of Christ. You see this numerous places in the Bible. And from the perspective of the condemned, the judge, they are viewing it as the day of the Lord. That's the day that the Lord is going to come and judge them. You and I are not fearful of that day. We are looking forward in anticipation of that day because everything that is wrong is going to be righted and we will be able to have fellowship and, and everything that, that uh, we have for eternity in front of us is about to happen. So we are joyful for that. So we view it as the day of Christ. That's the day when, when Christ comes. So anytime you read in the Bible about the day of the Lord, it's always about judgment. When you read about the day of Christ, it's always about reward and thanksgiving. So the point is that when God comes in his second coming and there's judgment, you and I are judged for kingdom rewards. We're not judged for penalty. Uh, our, our sins are already forgiven. So we are sitting at the throne awaiting in anticipation in eagerness about the kingdom rewards we are about to receive. Others that are going to be condemned, they are judged for the things that they did, all of their unconfessed sin that they have to pay the judgment for. So the point is that God is glorified either way. When he judges those that are condemned, he is glorified because he is righteous. He is standing up for, um, for the acts of the righteous, that those who have um, sinned and condemned and killed and murdered and, and did all the things in secret and, and, and did all the things through prideful rebellion, that God is, is, is glorified because he is finally bringing retribution. Those prayers from everybody that had been 
um, been praying to God over, you know, over millennia are finally being fulfilled. So God is going to be um, glorified by his rightful judgment. And God is also going to be glorified when he judges us for salvation, for his for his righteousness, for his mercy and the grace that he did. So whether God judges to condemn or God judges to save, God is glorified one way or the other. And the Bible alludes to the imagery that the last image that the condemned will see will be you and I and the people that they love that are about to enter heaven and be in the presence of God and seeing all of the things that have been prepared for us for these 2,020 some years. They are about to see what we are about to experience just as they are being thrown like trash into hell. And that will haunt them, that last image of what could have been, the opportunity that was squandered. That will be the haunting image that will bring anger to God when they when they gnash their teeth in anger at God and they're in misery for eternity. So God is complete sovereign in control. Everything is on his timetable. There's no twists and turns. There's no new information. God fully understands everything. He knows exactly when things are going to happen and everything happens on God's timetable just as he had planned for the God that we know is a very big God.